You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Friday, March 25th, 2022. This is episode number 244. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, a.k.a. Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast or watching on the YouTube channel, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 28,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today, we're talking about the former WeWork co-CEO gets into the cannabis business, New Jersey's sales delayed again, a medical research bill clears the U.S. Senate, The IRS kicks into high gear with audits, the high retail prices in Pennsylvania, fact-checking a fact-checker on whether or not the California cannabis industry is a pot mess, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. But keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's your headline today, Rico? Oh, man. My headline's first coming out of Axios yesterday. Uh, Former WeWork co-CEO becomes cannabis company president. And yet another leading indicator, cannabis has gone full-blown corporate America. We're celebrating and promoting white male mediocrity as the norm. The industry's largest online wholesaler ordering platform, LeafLink, announced yesterday former WeWork co-CEO Artie Minson will now be their president and chief operating officer. I'm sorry, did I just say he was co-CEO at WeWork? Minson was also president, COO, and CFO of the failed commercial real estate giant that masqueraded itself for years as a tech company, while he and partner Jared Leto, excuse me, Adam Newman, raked in billions from investors buying into the great white hype. His current online estimated net worth is north of $500 million, and prior to failing executive duties at WeWork, he was CFO of Time Warner Cable. Before that, COO and CFO of AOL. All companies declined drastically under his watch. Sounds about white to me. 
Only bigger surprise than Minson not assuming a more natural fit with MedMen is that he's not getting into cultivation because it seems good old Artie has a stellar track record of taking the wheel of giant corporate C-suites and riding them directly into the dirt. LeafLink is pretty much the industry standard when it comes to streamlined wholesale ordering, connecting over 10,000 licensed cannabis brands, retailers, and distributors. Minson's duties will include managing operations, sales, marketing, customer service, and corporate functions to scale the company's tech services. He'll be joining LeafLink's board of uh, directors, uh, reporting to co-founder and CEO Ryan G. Smith, who was quoted in a press release yesterday saying, already has an exceptional track record scaling and operating large-scale complex businesses and dynamic industries. His partnership comes as a pivotal moment in the cannabis industry as legalization becomes the norm in states from coast to coast with LeafLink's technology powering the space. Translation. He was one of the most successful chads on the market, and we really needed to level up to full Chadwick. Given Artie's successful LinkedIn headshot, we knew immediately he was our guy. Missing from said press release was an ample description of the stench left behind from the rotting carcasses of each firm upon his exit. I'd venture to say his privilege afforded him no issues whatsoever while speeding and swerving past squad cars, clearly high as fuck off the fame of the Apple Plus docudrama We Crashed, chronicling the epic rise and fail of his latest corporate masterpiece, We Work Judging by His Prepared Response to the News. I'm thrilled to be joining LeafLink at such an important time for the company, our customers, the states we operate in, and this industry. Well, Artie, welcome to the cannabis industry, brother. The way these headlines have been reading lately, you'll fit in just great. Rock on with your Chad self. This is Rico Lamite, the dopest dad on the street, reporting live for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Love to hear the rest of y'all's thoughts on this one. Well, I mean, this this just, you know, with these... Uh, cannabis companies bringing on these different corporate executives from different industries, I think is a part of a lot of the big problem why a lot of these cannabis companies ultimately fail is because they don't have adequate representation of the cannabis industry and how it actually works. And you have these corporate schmucks that just come in and think that they understand it because it's business 101 when cannabis industry is not business 101. It's business 420. Smells like an opportunity for someone to come in and really compete with LeafLink because we know that they're not going to be moving in the right direction with this guy steering the ship. I think he'll fit white in. Oh, that's pretty good, Rico. I, I was going to give you big props on, on how punny you were throughout that, Rico. Big props. I would love to comment, Rico, but I'm laughing too hard. Good job. I mean, he's just failing up every single fucking time. The dude's worth like half a billion fucking dollars right now, and he's coming to take over LeafLink. Like, I'm trying to find any good in this entire situation. Like, what good can come of this? He's the Jared Kushner of weed. I'm sure Ooh. his parents are very proud of him. I feel like we see this again and again. Like this story just play out. This plot line. It's so old. Like really, with uh, med men or midsmen and onward. Big MSO investors that, and you know, and the people that represent them that sit on boards don't like to hire career cannabis professionals. They just don't. And it's a big problem because the career cannabis professionals actually know how to run the businesses. Yeah. Sounds about, sounds, you speaking the truth. <laughs> sounds about white, Rico. <laughs> sounds about white. Well, he's not going to grace my stage anytime soon. Yeah, I think he's raising his hand, Susan. <laughs> Please come on. He up. can sit on it. All right. Anybody else? <laughs> anybody from the anybody from the, the from the audience want to want to chip in? Please. 
We are at time with that one. Okay, let's keep snorting the news. <laughs> let's. In an industry full of snakes, fakes, and flakes, in the great purple state of Texas with trolls posting up daily smoking Delta 8 underneath the bridge, this fellow dope dad is hitting the high road. That's right. He's the host and co-producer of the new show with Sensi Mag and fellow seeker of truth. Up next, Stone Slade. What you got for us today, my man? Thank you. Thank you, Rico. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday. Today, my story comes from good old Kyle Yeager at MJ Moment. Excuse me. This past Wednesday at a hearing in front of the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, GOP Senator Bill Cassidy, Republican from Louisiana, was regurgitating more of the same tired anti-cannabis scare propaganda, stating that legal cannabis will cause your kids to smoke pot based on alcohol-related trends that he's seen. But then he was stunned by a top federal drug official who reiterated that adolescent cannabis use has not increased in the states that have moved to legalize cannabis. That's right. Nora Volkow, director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, addressed the issue at a hearing before the committee. And while she did raise some concerns about potential health risks of cannabis overall, she made it clear that the evidence does not support a common prohibitionist argument that reforming cannabis laws leads to an increased underage consumption. Now, just when I was ready to praise Volkow, the NIDA director did say that there may be an association between marijuana consumption in young people and an increased risk of suicidality, and also said earlier in her testimony that one of the areas that she's most concerned about with the legalization of marijuana is potential negative mental health consequences of cannabis use. Now, former governor, uh, former Colorado governor, Senator John Hickenlooper, who at one time was also against legalizing because of this very reason, said that while youth consumption has not increased, he's seen more elderly residents beginning to patronize cannabis shops. The article goes on to give several links to study after study that all come to the same conclusion, that legal regulated cannabis market does not increase cannabis consumption among our youth. Now, of course, we can't always rely on our leaders to look at the facts or follow recommendations. Let's not forget, it was this month, 50 years ago, that President Nixon ignored the recommendation of a commission that he formed that called for decriminalizing cannabis, leading to 50 years of unnecessary arrests, deaths, that has us still fighting for this plant today. These lawmakers need to take a big step back and realize that they created this fictitious cannabis boogeyman with their greed and racist scare propaganda. They created the taboo around the plant. They created the illicit market. And they feed the illicit market when they do dumb shit like setting THC caps, unreasonable purchase limits for medicinal patients, and overtaxing our cannabis businesses. Here's a thought. Maybe, just maybe, there's not a rise in cannabis consumption amongst adolescents in legal markets because by legalizing, you're normalizing. And by normalizing, you're removing the bullshit taboo that the federal government created. I'm Stone Slade, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I don't know if it increases the use, but I do know now that it's legal. I know just hearing, hearing from people that there it's just an easy access to get like vapes and et cetera. And like, especially schools are dealing with that now. Like, I think it's just more easy access. I'm sorry, I thought it was more easy access. Isn't that it's the, the opposite? Isn't that the problem? Isn't that the problem with the message? That's not the, that's that's not what's happening. That's what that's what the prohibitionists will tell you. What, what are we talking about here? I think it was really interesting how he saw that the older contingent of people was increasing and then the teenage wasn't. I thought that was a positive piece. I in agree, there. Liz. I think it's positive, too. I mean, it makes me wonder. I, it was around me growing up as a kid. I always had it around me. It wasn't a big taboo thing. But with everybody around me in high school that, you know, was trying and getting into it, it makes me wonder. Like, they, they created this taboo. Is that is that's what's drawing people to it? And they're seeing reports in, in these legal markets where, you know, that's not the case, where it's been normalized and, you know, it's just part of everyday 
everyday living. Come on now. <laughs> if the kids aren't smoking weed, they're probably smoking something worse. Or they could be snorting it. Or maybe We all know it. that if, if you tell children that it's good for you and it's legal, they don't want it as much. So, I mean, that's just the way kids are. Allegedly. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. Now, this feisty redheaded conservative proudly claims her Mayflower roots and never backs down when challenged by pot loving libs and anybody else across the aisle who dares to challenge her. The founder of Panoptic Strategies is our very own Washington insider. Come to the stage next, Gretchen Gailey. What you got for us today? Uh, good afternoon, Rico. My headline is coming from Marijuana Moment. Um, and it is U.S. Senate unanimously approves marijuana reform bill on same day that a House schedules legalization vote. Uh, the Senate uh, yesterday unanimously approved a marijuana bill, but not the federal legalization measure that advocates have been eagerly awaiting, uh, Senator Chuck Schumer's bill. Nope, nope, nope. Good old Chuck still hasn't delivered that. Uh, rather, it's a modest bipartisan piece of legislation that's simply meant to promote research into marijuana. The bill, sponsored by Senators Dianne Feinstein, Brian Schatz, Chuck Grassley, is titled the Cannabidiol and Marijuana Research Expansion Act. Uh, it cleared the full chamber unanimously without debate. It would streamline the application process for researchers who want to study the plant and to encourage the FDA to develop cannabis-derived medicines. It also clarifies that physicians are allowed to discuss the risks and benefits of marijuana with patients and require the U.S. Uh, Department of Health and Human Services to submit a report on those potential health benefits as well, one, as well on barriers to cannabis research and how to overcome these obstacles. Uh, so basically what this bill would allow is for uh, the application process for, I, I guess they're calling them Schedule one registrants, uh, which are uh, medical osteopathic schools, practitioners, research institutions, and manufacturers, uh, to be able to cultivate their own cannabis to do research. Uh, it would also give the U.S. attorney would be given a 60-day deadline to either approve a given application or request a supplemental appli applicant information uh, for researchers who want this Schedule one uh, designation. Uh, then the DEA would uh, uh, approve drugs under their bill. Manufacturers would be allowed to import cannabis materials to facilitate research. Um, and then it, of course, also requires HHS to look into the health benefits and risks of marijuana. Uh, for those who don't remember, this bill was attached um, before to the omnibus bill, and good old Chuck kicked it out um, a couple months ago. Uh, but now, you know, Senator Feinstein, I think, has uh, bigger balls than him and got it brought back uh, probably against his uh his approval. Uh, the difference between this, there was a similar measure on the House side. The House side version um, would allow people to actually purchase cannabis from dispensaries to do research. So that's the main difference. So now they got to come together, see if they want this kind of thing. This is the kind of legislation that you will see Congress be willing to pass. Congress, they want stuff that looks into research, that looks into allowing things happen as a Schedule One. They are not ready to do uh, what we want them to do. This Gretchen for State Commission News Hour. I wonder. I wonder what's going to happen if researchers are growing their own cannabis. It seems a little wrong to me. Well, well I, I would just think want... a researcher could bring in somebody who knows how to grow it, as long as they're growing it under 
They should be researching. They should be researching what's actually on the shelves. I want to play this little clip of the clerk reading this this bill. It is hysterical. Listen to her. Duration. The clerk will report. S two five three, a bill to expand research on the cannabidiol and marijuana. (laughs) She's so uncomfortable. (laughs) On the cannabidiol. Um, I just I want to I want to really just congratulate my uh, my work wife in D.C., Amy Rising. She was the one that was really pushing behind this bill and getting a lot of the the answers to legislators in order to 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 get this bill to where it is today. So I just want to send a big kudos out to her and congratulations. Happy Friday, everyone. I'm very happy that legislation is moving along that will make it easier for scientists and physicians to research the plant making it easier on the application process. It, I'm a little confused about opening up for growing by other institutions that want to research the plan because I thought that was on lockdown, just opened up to four additional growers. So I'm a little confused about that part. But if, if they're willing to let other universities and, and anyone who wants to research the plan to grow their own, then that's a wonderful thing. Um, the fact that Feinstein is the one who's submitting this bill lets me know that Big Pharma has his hands all over it and that the research is going to tend to be more about single or two cannabinoid standardized pharmacological agents, which is probably what the majority of physicians will prefer um, in terms of feeling more comfortable prescribing it. But that won't be the whole plant like most people use it. Um, Also, this legislation provides too little, too late regarding CBD. CBD is already out there. This bill should have already contained regulation. It should be regulated immediately, like yesterday, along with Delta 8. So that's, that's one weakness I find in the bill. But other than that, you know, yay for making it easier to do research. But just know that this is going to tend to move it toward the big farm side of things. And Dr. Felicia Dawson, I'm done speaking. And I couldn't agree with you more, Dr. Felicia. I mean, I, this is definitely the way that Congress is going to go. They're going to go the medical side, the research side. Um, I think your confusion around the universities and such, I think they're looking at like the University of Mississippi model. Um, and that's how they're thinking that this is going to work. Uh, but I do, I, I do appreciate that they're trying to do something. And like you say, it's, it, it's a little late to the game, but at least it's happening. Very, very, very interesting indeed. We'll be watching that one closely. So coming to this, uh, coming up next. Wait, hang on. I think Liz and Christopher wanted to weigh in. Hop on in. Let's go. I just wanted to say, I think this is, I agree with Dr. Felicia. She brought up all the points I was going to say, but I did want to say, I remember that there was research that came out saying, or news that came out saying that researchers could look at cannabis from dispensaries. So I hope that that is still something that's part of this, though I'm not sure if that's state or federal. Yeah, and I, I do love the House's um, legislation of allowing researchers to get product from the dispensaries. That would be the ultimate, the ultimate in terms of getting accurate results from the research using the products that people are actually using. Christopher, go I would ahead. Just, I would just quickly also uh, uh, worry that uh, this is going to slow things down quite a bit. Once it gets into the big, giant FDA machine, it's going to slow us down. It's going to slow down approvals and that sort of thing. And the second thing I noticed was that the bill, uh, the marijuana in the bill name is spelled with an H, like in the old-fashioned way back in the 1930s from the 
the prohibitionists. So uh, I, I, I just can't understand why that legacy item is still there. Because the dinosaur, di dinosaur Feinstein is the one that wrote the bill, and, and I am highly suspect, like Dr. Felicia, um, she, no, she shouldn't be the one. I do not trust her. I don't trust none of them. All right. So uh, coming up next, it's the mink coat wearing private jet hopping Emerald Cup judging industry's longest continuously running retailer, also known as the industry's very own Kaiser Brose. And on the weekend, he enjoys sipping desalinated liberal tears while expertly pairing them with the world's greatest weed. Come to the stage next, Jason Beck. What you got for us, my man? Oh, yeah, Rico. Good morning and happy Friday to everybody out there in the metaverse. That's right. I should have a fucking crystal ball for my story because I fucking called this shit months ago. In a surprise, New Jersey legal weed sales are delayed again as a state panel says big applicants are not ready. In a surprise move, a state commission on Thursday delayed approving the expansion of eight medical marijuana dispensaries to start selling adult-use cannabis in New Jersey as soon as late April, right in time for 420. But guess what? Poo, 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 New Jersey, you're not going to get it because you got the wrong people in charge. The Cannabis Regulatory Commission that oversees the nascent industry did approve 68 cultivators and manufacturers for conditional licenses. However, those operations are not expected to launch until the fall at the earliest. The expansion of the eight alternative treatment centers to begin selling cannabis expected expected by industry experts was put on hold as a CRC executive director. Jeff Brown said the commission wants plans for how they can accommodate both medical cannabis patients and those seeking to buy in the adult use market. Brown said the centers simply don't have enough weed contending. The market may be short by a hundred thousand pounds to meet both medical and adult use populations. In a quote, we may not be 100% there today, but I assure you we'll get there, Brown said. Before the board voted 5-0 to zero to table voting on the expanded ATC applications, we have a few things to address, and when we address them, I'm happy to return to this body with a further update, he says. Our goal is to work with the industry and the industry to work with us, so at the very next CRC meeting, we have a cohort of ACTs that are turnkey to launch this market here, simply pending a vote by this commission, Brown said. If for any that are still not there, hopefully they'll be ready for conditional approval pending certain timelines and regulatory milestones that we can work to get done. The New Jersey Cannabis Trade Association said in a statement that while it remains optimistic that the CRC will sooner rather than later open an adult-use cannabis market in New Jersey, we admit to being disappointed with today's decision to further continuous delay. <coughs> Excuse me. And starting <clears throat> weed sales by spring would align with Governor Phil Murphy's revised fiscal year 2022 state budget proposal, which now anticipates $4 million in cannabis state sales revenue by June 30th of the year. Well, I just find it extremely disappointing that New Jersey is taking this delay, but at the same time, I can't say I didn't tell you so. And I find it extremely hysterical as well that their governing body is called the CRC for, you know, color remediation therapy. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Well, what about the patients? This makes me so frustrated for people in New Jersey. The trap wins again. All they got to do is drive to New York to the food trucks that sell weed. Bodegas <laughs> all day, allegedly.
Well, I think they should just call them Delta 8 stands. You could just order a poster and they'll bring you your medicine. Anybody from New Jersey want to pop up? I know we have a couple of people in the audience from New Jersey. Garden State. Going once. They have some good soil out there. I'm just saying, I've definitely grown in that Garden State soil, and some of it is pretty good. Just because the whole fucking That's just all yeah, the whole state is a, a compost heap. <laughs> Sorry, I love y'all, New Jersey. I love y'all, but it does smell like shit. All right, going forward. He's a communication strategist and publisher of the American Cannabis Report. Citizens from his home planet call him Cal L. While flying high on Earth, he's known to the public as Superman, but we all know his secret identity, the cannabis industry's very own Clark Kent. Come to the stage, Christopher Smith. What you got for us today, my man? Happy Friday. Thanks for the great intro, Rico, and good morning, Susan. How are you doing? My story today comes from the Times of San Diego. It's an opinion piece from a nonprofit group called Say San Diego. Say, S-A-Y, is for Social Advocates for Youth. Uh, The group was formed in 1971, the very same year that Dick Nixon created the War on Drugs, followed in 1972 by the Drug Enforcement Administration, and 1974 by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA. Um, I I, um, mention these connections not for a history lesson, but because the very first item on Say San Diego's core services is alcohol, tobacco, and substance abuse prevention. So it all seems to tie in together nicely with this headline, fact-checking misleading claims that California's cannabis industry is suffering. The article begins, words matter, facts do too. Uh Uh-oh, shots fired. I can almost hear the pages of my grandmother's Bible flipping in the Kansas City breeze. The opening of the article is a checklist of civic-minded organizations who are on fact patrol. There's NIDA. This adherence to the truth inspires National Drug and Alcohol Facts Week, apparently that's this week, um, an annual observance dedicated to inspiring civic dialogue about the science of drug abuse, uh, drug use and addiction among youth, launched by the scientists at NIDA. And we have the Public Health Institute, founded 1967, right on time, and their number one item is alcohol, tobacco, drugs, and mental health. And finally, getting it right from the start, a nonprofit cannabis policy think tank whose first item is protecting youth, public health, and equity in cannabis regulation. So all the do-gooders are lined up on one side against guess who? Quote, this year, National Drug and Alcohol Facts Week collides with an alternative universe created by big cannabis. Hey, Grandma, we're famous. They think we are the big, the big bad wolf with the Darth Vader soundtrack. And what's got their youth-protecting, fact-checking panties in a twist? An article called Local Restrictions on Can- uh, Marijuana Dispensaries Fuel Growing Illegal Market, or as they call it, Exhibit A in Big Cannabis's Onslaught of Misinformation. The Big Bad article explained that when California legalized adult use in 2016, it allowed municipalities to opt out of having cannabis businesses, but also allowed them to opt out of medical dispensaries that were already open. We've reported on this many times on the State of Cannabis News Hour. Uh, quote, thousands of medical shops were shut down across the state, leaving only about 800 licensed dispensaries for the whole state of 33 million people, or about two for every 100,000 residents. And by contrast, Oregon, Washington, and Alaska have seven, nine, and ten times as many per capita. So I'm pretty sure the source of that data was that famous article in Politico that we've all seen, uh, which quoted uh, data from MJ Biz Daily. Well, the do-gooders are mad, mad, mad about all this. They're mad about this. Quote, 
And yet today there are fewer licensed retail outlets in state than there were in 2015. They're mad because they say medical dispensaries don't count as retail outlets. So I bet Walgreens and CVS are going to be really pissed when they hear that. They're mad about this. Quote, legal cannabis sales are declining and emboldened and illicit market is growing. They're mad because there's no way to determine the actual size of the illicit market. So, oh my God, how can you say that? And they're mad about this. Despite popular approval of Prop 64, only 85 of the state's 500 municipalities allow retail cannabis sales, quote from the article. They're mad because they say those numbers are wrong. There's twice as many dispensaries out here, and there's a one for every 26,000 people, which is still vastly uh, underperforming for California. So oddly, that's the whole show. Their article proves absolutely nothing. It's a he said, she said kind of thing. Makes no salient point about policy, suggests any corrections that can be made in the real world to make it safer for youth or for patients, workers, investors, business owners. By the way, nothing. Nothing but the following sermon to end the article. Quote, National Drug and Alcohol Facts Week is a reminder of the fragility of truth in the hands of people who place the prerogative of profit over the power of us. Grandma, your grandson is a weed smoker, but I'm betting that God's favorite plant is grown in heaven and we can twist one up when I get there. But don't wait up. It's going to be a while. And that's my story. Well, I can uh, quote the great Cameron on Bill O'Reilly, O'Reilly Factor (laughs) back in 2009 and just say this with my chest. You mad. (laughs) They're big mad, Christopher. They're so mad. I think it's hysterical that they think big cannabis is so organized, working together. That's a joke. Uh, we've got Joanna Cedar up from the audience. Joanna, what did you want to say? I just wanted to talk a little bit about the Public Health Institute. They, you know, they're they're a problem adversary because they they do some really good work in areas that have nothing to do with cannabis, like working on sugar sodas in schools and 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 diabetes issues with children and the woman who runs the uh, the cannabis section, um, getting it the getting it right from the start program, smart approaches to marijuana, which are not at all. Um, her name is Lynn Silver, and she runs around saying, I'm the only pediatrician who's dealing with this. Well, she is absolutely wrong on just about everything when it comes to cannabis. And um, yet people listen to her. Throughout the state, they get a lot. The Public Health Institute is a big organization. They're worldwide. They get a lot of funding, grant funding. And um, keep your eye on her. Lynn Silver is her name. And she's she's the woman behind um, the potency caps that are popping up in ordinances um, uh, in localities all over California. That's all I got. Thanks for bringing me up to the stage. Have a great day. That's great intel, Joanna. Thank you. We have to know our enemies and know who exactly they are. I think we need a mad meter. And, uh, you know, unfortunately. Yeah, I've had run-ins with her, and it, it, they have not been pretty. She's rude. She thinks I have cannabis cooties because I wanted to shake her hand and have a conversation. Yeah, been there, done that, not doing it again. She's, she's not that rare, though, Joanna. There's a lot of physicians who are you know, clinging to this bad research, and so they, they, they really honestly believe they're correct and they're trying to save everyone from this horrible plant what about the children all right you guys we are going to relight this room 
You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker in the State of Cannabis or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. If you missed the beginning of the show, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a killer review. Let's keep smoking the news. Now, she's an attorney at law focused on bridging the gap between cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. She's also co-owner of one of the flyest IG pages on the team. The other owner? Mark Zuckerberg. Coming to the stage next is the founder of Cannabis Blog and Podcast, Shall We Tote, Shalina Panu. What you got for us today, Shalina? Thank you so much, Rico. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is The City of Oakland Sends Notice of Violation to Green Sage to Stop Acting or Else. Green Sage LLC is a cannabis real estate development firm focused on the cannabis industry. According to KQED, Green Sage has been the center of over two dozen lawsuits on both the state and federal level in California, Colorado, and Virginia. Green Sage is led by Ken Greer, a corporate financier and investment banker, and Bruce Miller, a real estate investor. In 2016 and 2017, Green Sage bought two properties called the Tinnery and the Cannery within the Bay Area. There are reports from tenants that the continuous diesel emissions from the generators at the cannery has been the cause of the reduction of tenants in the last two years from 32 tenants down to 10 due to the unlivable conditions. A Canary resident and former building manager sent an email to city officials giving them until yesterday, March 24th, in the afternoon to have the generators shut down. They warned they would join community supporters in shutting down the generators themselves if the city failed to act. These residents believe that they can do this by blocking tanker trucks delivering daily diesel fuel by the thousands in gallons that are needed for the generators to operate. Green Sage was also sent a notice of violation last month from the Bay Area Quality Management District for failure in obtaining a permit to operate the generators. In turn, Green Sage applied for an air district permit by the agency stated this Monday that the application was not complete. This past Monday on March 21st, Green Sage was sent a notice of violation, which I've clicked, uh, I've included here so if you want to view that, from the City of Oakland. Here's what is stated in the notice. On October 21st, 2021 and January 7, 2022, the Fire Prevention Bureau of the Oakland Fire Department inspected 5601 San Leandro Street in Oakland and confirmed violations of the California Fire Code on the property. And as recently as March 10th, 2022, the Fire Prevention Bureau observed these violations are still occurring. They included photographs of the violations. They stated that the property will be re-inspected on April 22nd of this year and that all violations must be remedied as followed. So the first violation was using generators without a valid permit. The The permits previously issued by the OFD were for temporary use and have expired. So the remedy is to stop the use of the generators. The second violation was the storage use and handling of compressed gases for the generators in use. The remedy is to remove all storage containers from the compressed gases used for generators and stop using and handling such gases to fuel the generators. 
The third violation was using and storing and using and storing diesel fuel for the generators without a permit. The remedy is to stop using the generators and remove storage containers for the diesel fuel used for the generators. The fourth violation was the diesel generator exhaust fumes pose a grave risk to the health and safety of residents and employees. The exhaust fumes from the diesel generators are entering living spaces of first floor occupants. The remedy again is stop use of the generators. The notice does provide an appeal form with instructions on how to appeal as they have the right to do so. The notice also states that if the violations have not been corrected by April 22nd of this year, the following will occur. There will be inspection and administrative costs. There will be, um, upon the further inspection issuance of a stop work order or other, other applicable notice, they may be subject to fees for the work complete with work completed without permits, which are four times all the fees. There will be a charge for two stop work orders slash failures to comply, which is 10 times all fees. Um, there will be administrative citations, which will be again will be assessed against them beginning the day of the reinspection and continuing all, until all violations are corrected. So it will be $100 the first day, $250 the second day, and $500 for each day, each day thereafter. That will total up to $5,000 per year. And then it may the property may also be declared a public nuisance. And then uh, there will be civil penalties up to $1,000 per day that will accrue up to $365,000 per year. The city may abate the violations by seeking a warrant for the removal of the generators and charging them for all associated contracting and administrative costs. And then the notice of violation may be recorded on the property title with associated fees for processing and recording. And then if worse, if it gets even worse, the matter may be referred to the Alameda County District Attorney's Office for criminal pro uh, prosecution of the fire code violations. If they don't pay their citations and all related uh, expenses and fees, the city may recover by all legal means, including a nuisance abatement lien and special assessment property lien of the general tax levy or by civil and small claims action by brought by the city or both. And then if we go back a few more months that they were also sent a letter on December 7th from the same city of Oakland regarding a, um, a required corrective action from their October 25th visit and during that visit they observed extensive electrical system hazards and building and fire code violations um, the main electrical service was overloaded to the extent that the PG&E transformer has collapsed the electrical rooms are not adequately providing safe entrance to and exit from the required working space several areas contain equipment rendering the need to classify the spaces as hazardous locations um, against uh, all the codes and then engineered load calculations and fuel check and then approximately nine portable industrial size generators were installed to supply power to the various tenants without the city required permits and inspections. Um, so then they also stated this was only a partial list and um, they will be conducting inspections early this year, followed by notices of violation to their Denver. Oh, they also sent notices of violation to their Denver offices, which were returned to the city without receipt. Um, the city demands that for the noted electrical hazards, they must take corrective action to bring the electrical system into code compliance. Um, they also require them to immediately submit an electrical engineer plan showing the current electrical system. And then more importantly, in terms of the generators and operation, which has been the main cause of concern for residents, it will need to be approved for interim use by the Fire Prevention Bureau. It additionally states that in the valuation process, the Fire Prevention Bureau will need to coordinate with the Bureau of Building to ensure the use of the generators is compliant with all relevant codes. Um, this was a long article. I just wanted to tell you guys what the violations were, what they've had against them. Um, I don't know if anyone here knows anyone that knows about this. My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. This makes me so angry. These dudes said that they are avid environmentalists. Shame on them. 
Shame on them. This is terrible. The cannabis industry needs to be more green, not less green. This is why I think the plant should be grown under the sun whenever possible. Uh, we've got to be more sustainable. We've got to do better. I just read a study that, that said that uh, it takes more, the carbon footprint for one joint is more than a glass of beer or a cigarette. We've got to do better. This is awful. There's so many other industries that are such high grosser polluters than cannabis. This is just stupid and ridiculous. And the city of Oakland needs to just let this business operate. Did they call it clean diesel? One. uh, Especially with the price of diesel right now. On a program where we celebrate cannabis, let's definitely not go tossing around claims that other industries like alcohol aren't causing as much pollution as cannabis. But for real here, the, the biggest victims here are the tenants that are paying rent that and engaged in licensed cannabis activity that are going to have to cease their operations because these uh, essentially property owners or property managers have not provided adequate energy for the cannabis operations there and chose to uh, install unpermitted energy to allow those cannabis operations to exist. And they're not going to be able to clean this up fast enough for the tenants to continue operating. I just love how um, Gavin Newsom doesn't really want to let uh, people in mass use solar in the, in the industry in the Golden State. Great point. I mean, I mean, if they were an illegal trap grow, they wouldn't have any problem using a diesel generator, and nobody would be complaining about shit. Everybody should be complaining about diesel. There's no air uh, air control, air quality control. That's like parking an 18 wheeler outside and letting it run 24 hours a day. This is a nightmare for local. We had an issue with this, this is- in Santa Barbara County, where Raw Garden claims that they are clean, green cannabis, and they were cited for having generators that were polluting diesel right into a neighborhood right next to it where families live. They claim that it was because of the laws in California not being able to move forward fast enough with. Um, energy and permitting, which is definitely an issue. So I'm glad that you brought this story, Shalina, and it highlights it. And I think it's something that we should really pay attention to. You know, but uh, California is leading the charge, <laughs> leading the charge in clean energy. Sure. The- you know, diesel is an amazing strain, by the way, too, just so you guys know. It's been fucking fire. Quite sour. The photo of the building it, there is just black soot all over the building, and I can't even imagine the noise. Please, that's Susan. actually put there. That's actually there, so people know graffiti on the wall, Susan. African American soot, please. If you guys have the time, go look at the pictures on the notice, and then you can see what it, what their building and the generators look like. I just feel like Oakland has so many other problems that they should be focusing their time on. This is not one of them. Can't believe you're trying to let these people off the hook, Jason. I don't understand you. It's more of a tenant issue more than anything. Indeed. So that's that's definitely an issue we need to be watching closely going forward. Thank you for bringing that to light, Shalina. All right. So this OG veteran and dope dad's known and respected by peers as a steadfast defender of the culture. Always first to stand up for the rights of legacy operators, the co-founder and CEO of Papa and Barkley is coming to the stage next. Take a seat, y'all. It's time to listen to the gospel of Guy Rocourt. What you got for us today, my man? Wow. Thank you. Thanks, Rico. Appreciate that intro. Uh, good morning, Susan. Good morning, team. Yeah. Uh, i try to keep it calm, but MJ Biz Daily is giving us this article titled IRS ramps up marijuana business audits after COVID-19 low, sources say. So 
as a, as a result of COVID-19, we know that t IRS had slowed down audits all over the country, um, but there has definitely been a significant increase. Uh, a lawyer uh, named Rachel Gillette, a Denver tax attorney with Holland and Hart, has, is quoted in the article saying that she's seen a significant increase in audit notification letters being sent to marijuana clients in Colorado specifically. She's also hearing of not only Colorado, but California, Florida, Massachusetts. They've issued 50 letters uh, to cannabis companies in Denver alone. Gillette estimates the total number of targeted companies could be more than 100. The IRS also appears to be broadening its focus on forms required for crash transactions of $10,000 or more, specifically the Form 8200, which is supposed to file every time there's a transaction over, over $10,000. Okay, now most of this enforcement is non-localized, meaning folks are calling. It's not on a boots-on-the-ground effort yet. And, of course, the main section, main uh, question is, are these folks trained up on the notion of 280E? There's also this notion that I'd love for, to hear about the group because it's not clear in the article of collection agents, meaning folks who are empowered by the IRS if you are cited. So if you get a letter or notice from the IRS saying that you might be in violation, apparently these collection agents might be the ones to knock on your door. But Form 8300 does seem to be a focus. And obviously, most cannabis industry uh, retailers have a lot of cash. But there's definitely been a bump in IRS activity as of late. One of the more concerning parts of the article is a section titled specifically Expanding Enforcement. As to comment, an IRS spokesperson, Dean Patterson, referred to a blog post in the MJ, MJ Biz Daily last fall by commission, IRS Commissioner DeLon Harris, where he pledged to help marijuana companies comply with their federal tax obligations. But Gillette said that the commissioner's true message was that the IRS would be ramping up cannabis in cannabis industry audits. Quote, the IRS actually announced it as sort of a, hey, we're going to help you get into compliance and the way we do that is by auditing. The implication meaning that the IRS wants to audit more of us so that we understand how to be compliant. The problem with that is each and every agent is going to take a different approach, specifically as it relates to cost of goods sold, which is something that's totally wrapped up in 280E. So if you don't get an agent that knows what they're doing or haven't paid big bucks for a lawyer that can defend yourself, you could be at risk by the shenanigans of 280E, did you deduct cost of goods sold? Did you structure your entities correctly? And audits take time and money and bandwidth that many small companies don't have. So this is, if you are in cannabis business, I definitely suggest you read this article. I definitely suggest you get it to your legal apparatus and make sure that you're prepared if in fact somebody comes knocking at your door wanting to investigate your tax obligations as a cannabis, especially a tax, a I'm sorry, a plant touching company. It, it there is There does seem to be some, hey, we're not gonna stop because uh, I think there's another quote here in the article. I, I don't know if it was from uh, Ms. Gillette saying that the IRS has no intention of start stopping. Why would they? Because they view us as a cash cow. Until 280E is abated, they can come in and any particular agent can find a reason to find you or say that you have a tax liability. Some of the first that were done turned up tens of millions in tax liability. So this is definitely a serious issue for all cannabis companies. I definitely want to hear from the group, especially the legal folks around this collect 
collections agent? Is that a thing? Um, how does the IRS work? Anything that you can help uh, give us to help us keep us safe would be awesome. This is Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I, I thought that the IRS was decimated in terms of their staffing. The last administration really decreased their staffing, so I don't even know how they have all the, this manpower to to do all this, especially when the last occupant of the White House hadn't paid his taxes in a decade. It's like the police pulling over people, people pulling over the people for uh, air freshener, the wrong air freshener hanging from their rearview mirror. That's what this is like. They, they can't get real criminals. They, can, they can't afford to go after the people with the deepest of pockets because they usually lose and they see us as an easy target. So they're just going after the cannabis industry. Exactly, Rico. We yeah. are low hanging fruit for, for, for these yep. agents. And it's an easy, easy slam dunk case for them. It's not they, they don't have to prove a lot. Um, and, and the one thing that I think that it's important for everyone uh, in cannabis to really understand, because I've gone through this whole situation a number of years ago with these guys, is that in tax court, you are guilty until proven innocent. It is not the same as, as a traditional court. You are guilty until proven innocent. The federal government can say whatever the fuck they want to say, and that's what it is, and it's your job to prove otherwise. Yeah, I got to echo what Jason says. You know, basically, I mean, cannabis businesses being brought up on allegations of uh, improper, or, you know, not paying enough in taxes and additional 280E liability. It's super low-hanging fruit, and there is this taint or presumption that you owe money. The levies are real, and for us cannabis businesses, those costs of fighting, the legal costs of fighting it are not going to be deductible to those businesses. So it's a really prime target, you know. Other people like Trump, et cetera, that run real estate businesses, et cetera, they can deduct their legal fees from their operating costs as an allowable deduction, and cannabis businesses cannot. Paul, this is the reason why they're not rushing in Washington to uh, legalize cannabis. Why would they? They're already collecting the money hand over fist. Well, and, and just to speak on, on, on Guy, on, on what you mentioned, um, just so that people understand how this works, um, an IRS agent will not show up to your door. You will get a letter in the mail advising you of this, and it's one of the main reasons why I have PTSD. And I, my, my biggest fear every day is the mailman because nothing ever good comes in the mail. Ask Jungle Boys. That was not the IRS, bro. That's the CDFTA with the Highway Patrol. That's a totally different situation. And they were notified that that was that that was going to happen, and the CDFTA had every right to go and do that. If you asked them, you would have found out that it, that it wasn't the IRS. That's why I said to ask them, Jason. It, it was the CDFTA. It was not the IRS that was there that day. Yeah. But, you know, you guys, this, this thinks of such bias. Like, the thing that concerned me the most is that different auditors will be different. So you could get like you could have a nice small cannabis business be doing everything right. You get a person that has cannabis hate in their heart and we know they're out there and they're going to find a reason to screw you over. 280E basically suggests that we're criminals and drug dealers. And there are IRS agents that probably believe that now in a way. I'm glad that it's potentially a letter. But, you know, Jason, after the letter, how do they follow up? Does somebody show up or. How do we- no, 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 no one shows up. Basically, you'll give that to your legal team. Your legal team will engage with the IRS and then you'll have a series of meetings at the IRS building um, where you'll bring different documents and whatnot and state your case. And then ultimately it'll go go before a judge and you'll have a trial. And that's that's how it goes. But you're not going to have IRS agents coming and, uh, and 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 stopping business. That's not what didn't didn't the IRS raid Oaksterdam University. That was the DEA. I think the IRS. The IRS may have accompanied the DEA, 
but it was the DEA that initiated the raid. Okay. All right. So rep in Long Beach, California, very heavy. Our next correspondent is the CEO of Fruits Labs, a cannabis and intellectual property attorney. And if the vibes are so strong out in the atmosphere, you know they're even stronger underneath his beard. Come to the stage, Brandon Dorsky. Thanks for having me today. My headline comes from Law 360. It's an update to a story I did earlier this week. The headlines, Georgia asked court to unfreeze prosecutors' THC crackdown. The state of Georgia has requested a trial court judge roll back a temporary restraining order it had imposed on an Atlanta-area prosecutor's attempts to go after businesses selling D8, D10, and other allegedly unregulated cannabinoid products. Georgia claims the plaintiffs in the temporary restraining order suit failed to give the state the required five-day notice before a TRO could take effect. Judge Craig Schwal had granted the motion for a temporary restraining order last Friday, and the order is set to expire on April 17th. The order extends to prosecutors pursuing any civil asset forfeiture or criminal action in connection with the sale or distribution of hemp-derived compounds. But Georgia claims they had no attorney present to represent them at last Friday's hearing because they failed to receive the required notice and that the state did not voluntarily waive the notice requirement in this case. And so the TRO only applies to the attorney general, Patsy Austin Gatson, and not the state itself. The state said, quote, while the TRO is against the state official suit in her individual capacity, the state is a party defendant in this action and therefore the statutory notice requirement applies. The debate is a hot-button topic, as some states have outright banned products with psychoactive compounds derived from hemp, and other states have regulated them under adult-use marijuana products, like in Oregon or Michigan, or folded regulation of the products into their anticipated cannabis marketplace. Not sure where things are actually going to fall in Georgia, but with the state arguing that the TRO does not apply to them and only a specific prosecutor, it smells like the days of permitted sales of D8, D10, and other synthetic cannabinoids in or around Atlanta are numbered. This is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. Delta 8 is forever. Uh, Dr. Groff, who got that license to grow um, cannabis, states that it's just a matter of time before they crack down on D- Delta 8. I think it's interesting. We're seeing a lot more of this movement on Delta 8, so I'm curious overall what we'll see, and especially as federal legalization looms on the horizon. There's definitely been a lot more Delta hate in the atmosphere lately. No one else? No one else? Yes. <laughs> what was that what was that sound effect, Susan? Crickets. <laughs> I love it. All right. So coming up next, she's an educator educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant, founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County. And you know what? She's a very own pinup girl. Coming to the stage next, bringing the day to another drama, Liz Rogan. What you got for us? Bring us home. Oh, sorry about that. Greetings, everybody. Thank you, Rico. Happy Friday, and thanks for tuning in to join us today. My story comes from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette by Harold Brubaker from the Philadelphia Inquirer. The headline reads, Pennsylvania marijuana regulator decries stubbornly high retail prices for medical cannabis. So historically, Pennsylvania has has had some of the highest prices for medical cannabis. The average wholesale price for a gram of medical cannabis flour has fallen 36% since the beginning of 2020. But in the same period, the average retail price that patients pay is down only 14%. 
Translated into money, this means the average wholesale gram fell from $10 to about $6.50. For patients at the register, the average price fell from $15 to about $13 a gram. So John Collins, who's the outgoing director of the state's Office of Medical Marijuana said to the Pennsylvania Medical Marijuana Advisory Board, this discrepancy is a red flag that needs to be investigated. Collins said, we can't, quote, we can't particularly force a price point. Dispensaries take title to the product and have the right to price it. What can we do to encourage more competition? We can put a spotlight on it like we're doing today. Jeff Reedy, who's the ED of the Lehigh Valley chapter of Normal, said, Quote, Director Collins' acknowledgement of pricing inequities exemplifies that industry players are concerned more about profits and less about helping our over 400,000 active patients. Pennsylvania Department of Health has legal authority to cap prices, but they haven't taken that step yet. Luke Schultz, who's a medical marijuana patient on the Marijuana Advisory Board, said the options are, quote, unsustainable and problematic because they would likely all raise cap prices to a cap. Meredith Butner, who's the executive director of the Pennsylvania Cannabis Coalition, said that the state, quote, fails to recognize the regulatory reality of operating in Pennsylvania. She says one of the main costs is product testing requirements and the inability of Pennsylvania operations to remediate contaminated cannabis into something else they can sell. So the Medical Marijuana Board meets several times a year. Among its responsibilities is they consider which medical conditions to approve for the program. Um, so it's also charged with considering um, changes. They meet several times a year. And I want to remind you that medical cannabis is not covered by insurance. So medical patients do lose the most in this situation, which is really truly terrible because medical patients were the original impetus for laws to change. Yet again, money comes out on top. And as Rico says, follow that money. Pennsylvania just had the recall of many vape products, which was really unclear, costing the patients even more money. The operators in Pennsylvania are mainly MSOs, and there's very little flour available overall. While this article focuses on the price per gram of flour, we know the concentrates often demand a higher price point, and that's what's mostly available in Pennsylvania dispensaries for medical patients. We also know that the myriad of constantly changing regulations are incredibly costly for operators, like we said with this recall. So are they really overcharging? What do you guys think? Is this actually accurate? And do we have any Pennsylvania folks in the audience who have any comments on this? I'm Liz Rogel, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Hey, Liz, I'm actually sitting in Pittsburgh right now. Um, and the problem that has plagued the Pennsylvania market ever since it started was a lack of supply. They have limited licensing and that there are very few uh, number of growers out there in Pennsylvania who actually know what they're doing. I believe it's under uh, 75 licenses for growths. They're all controlled by MSOs. And Pennsylvania started as a market without flour. Um, all they were going with was concentrate. They only allowed flour like a year or two ago. So they're just totally screwed either way. Can patients grow their own, Gretchen? Uh, I believe there's a little home grow. But again, Pennsylvanians don't know what the hell they're doing. So uh, no, I have not heard much about people trying to home grow around here. We love you, Pennsylvania. That was a really great show. <clears throat> if you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico for co-producing the show and to our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears 
years when there's news in your city, county, state, or country, your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. Have a great weekend, everybody, and we'll see you on Monday. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. What makes a bye so good? Just because we say goodbye? (laughs) Think about it. Bye. Bye. Bye.